Welcome to the Polygon Alpha Podcast, where the Polygon community gathers insights from today's leaders in decentralized finance and crypto. I'm your host, Justin Havens, aka Crypto Texan. Let's get started. On today's episode of Polygon Alpha, we are joined by Bartek Kibucherski, who is the founder of L2Beat and a blockchain architect for MakerDAO. Bartek, thanks for being here with us today. How's everything going? Good, good. Um, you know, uh, things are not going as uh, well as we would have liked them to be uh, uh, with markets. <laughs> so this is probably a very rough time for us to have this conversation. But uh, other than that, you know, we keep building. Yeah, absolutely. There's no shortage of builders. I recently went to the Permissionless Conference in West Palm Beach and then the Consensus Conference in Austin. And I think if you were to look around and through the conversations we were having, you know, you you would have no idea what the price action is doing right now. Yeah, and also it does help uh, if you've been through that uh, a number of times. I mean, for me personally, this is uh, like the third major uh, drawdown and third major crash of the uh, 2017 and then the COVID uh, March 2020 and this is the third and every time the market rebounces uh, but it also flashes out uh, bad projects. Yeah let's talk a little bit more about that like what is your background? I know you were involved with MakerDAO before L2 Beats. Uh, can you just give us a little background on that? My um crypto journey uh, started uh, more than five years ago, so I almost feel like an OG in the space. And uh, actually, uh, before I joined MakerDAO, which was, like I said, about five years ago, I spent some time uh, in in a startup that was trying to uh, revolutionize uh, using blockchain technology, how people actually trade the energy that they get from their uh, personal PVs uh, installed uh, on their roofs. Um, so that didn't really work because uh, of the uh, regulations, and that was German-based. I mean, the regulations are very, very uh, complex in Germany, uh, but that did give me a lot of exposure uh, to the whole space. And, and then I moved uh, to work uh, for MakeDAO, and I've been doing that ever since, essentially. But you're also one of the founders of L2 Beat as well. So what, you know, what brought you? What's the story behind L2 Beat? Actually, um, this is a common theme uh, for MakerDAO, uh, which uh, is kind of pioneering uh, a lot of things. And it all started with uh, a set of tools like the... Um, um, the Ceph and um, other um, command line tools to, to query and to work with the uh, Ethereum blockchain that was created by the Dub Hub and collectively it's called Dub Tools, but it was like created because MakerDAO needed that, right? And uh, we created a lot of other tools as well. And, and this is how, you know, um, when MakerDAO wants something and that something is not available on the market, it just tends to sort of fund uh, the development of that thing and that thing you know becomes uh if this is good and needed uh, it becomes independent and this is pretty much the story uh about l2 beat uh it all started with the uh the need for uh of MakerDAO to uh to launch die uh, on different chains but in a responsible way and by the responsible way we mean that ideally 
uh, that die that you create on other chains should be fully fungible of the die that you create on the main net, right? So when you think about it this way, uh, then you come to realize that you really need to understand the security assumptions of the, those different chains because the, uh, the die on the main net uh, which you mint on mainnet is essentially as secure as the mainnet Ethereum, uh, which means that it's very secure, right? Um, if you mint DAI on something which is much less secure uh, and you want that to be fungible with the um, L1 DAI, you're essentially uh, lowering the security of the L1 DAI to, to this less secure chain, if you like. Um, so that became, uh, you know, a bit of a problem for us, and we ended up evaluating all these uh, different chains. And the result of this evaluation, which we called a risk profile, ended up in a spreadsheet that I created. I sort of published the spreadsheet. I tried to uh, make people aware of that spreadsheet, and I think I, maybe I managed to get like maybe ten people like looking at the spreadsheet. Um, so. And so then I figured that maybe I should publish it as a website. And, and this is more or less how L2B started, right? We took all the research that I've done. I managed to convince uh, some my colleagues uh, to, to help me create this website. And, and it ended up, you know, being one of the uh, uh, most well-known resources if you really want to learn about the security assumptions of different uh, L2s. Yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite resources that I use when I'm trying to get, you know, just a little bit more information on layer two solutions. And I, I think that's interesting what you said, because you're right. When you mint die on mainnet, it's 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 as secure as the Ethereum blockchain, which is very secure. But then if you were to bridge it to like Arbitrum or Optimism or the Polygon proof of stake chain, uh, the security properties of that asset are have, have fundamentally changed, right? Die on Arbitrum is not the same as die on the Polygon proof of stake chain. And so that was kind of the reasoning for putting all this together is to, I guess, say like how, what are the security risks between each chain once we put die on all those chains? Is that fair to say? Yeah, this is uh, fair to say. And I think the best analogy that uh, I can come up with is when you take uh I don't know, a mortgage uh, in one of the banks, then you uh, withdraw the money and you treat it as fully fungible with the money that someone else's got from some other bank, right? And if uh, your bank is very insecure and it just mints US dollars out of thin air, uh, then obviously that has a very uh, significant impact on you know the whole uh, dollar ecosystem if there was no limit to how much this bank could uh, have printed, right? Uh, so we kind of assume that these banks, even though they can uh, print dollars, they do it in a way which uh, is sound, uh, is secure, and and they have you know uh, whatever operational processes. Uh, that they use to actually secure uh, their accounts. Um, on blockchain, uh, we don't need and we don't want uh, to have a trust uh, third party to uh, to kind of regulate us, uh, but we do have technology that we can evaluate, right? And we can see more or less what are the security assumptions. So so that's the best analogy I can come up with. And, and it's not just about bridging DAI to other chains. Uh, we're thinking ultimately also about minting DAI on other chains, which you will be able to bridge back uh, to uh, Ethereum. 
right? And that DAI that you say minted on, let's say, Optimism, if you bring it back to Ethereum, it, it will be the same DAI as if you minted it on Ethereum. I think it's also interesting that, you know, when I think of MakerDAO, I also think of Compound in a way, in the sense that uh, you're not available on any other sidechains or L1s, right? You haven't deployed out there. Um, why do you feel like, do you feel like that there's similarities between MakerDAO and Compound in that sense from a security standpoint? Or why do you feel like both of you together have chosen this strategy? I cannot say uh, why Compound uh, did not go to other chains. Uh, the closest protocol to Compound is Ava, and they did. And these markets are fairly isolated. If you use Ava on on uh, Ethereum, uh, this is, you can say, a different Ava than Ava on, let's say, Polygon, right? Or Ava on Optimism. And the reason why you can do that, or you can easily uh, move, let's say, Uniswap or, or, or any other AMMM uh, to other chains, is that you're essentially copy-pasting smart contracts, and these systems are fairly is isolated. Um, and as I said before, uh, for Maker is a little bit different because the primary function of Maker is to mint die, right? So if you just copy paste that Maker on, let's say, Polygon today, uh, that's like super easy. That would take us probably a few days to do it. Uh, however, the die minted would not be the same as die minted on L1, right? It would be essentially a different token with different security properties, and and I it, and it's just not just about security. It's also about the peg. So you may have DAI, the, the Ethereum version, uh, like keeping the peg, right? Whilst the DAI on another chain may lose the peg, and you don't want that, right? So I mean, like I said, I mean the the ideal world that we want to sort of try to uh, move towards to is that for end users, uh, it doesn't really matter where you keep your DAI; it's DAI, right? This is this permissionless uh, currency that. Uh, should not uh, be uh, uh, censored uh, by anyone and should be always backed up by the pledge uh, of either collateral or the pledge uh, to uh, to essentially uh, pay off the loan. So let's let's move over to layer twos. Um, what is L two Beats definition of a, a layer two, and then? I think there can be some confusion in the space sometime, um, maybe not with the people who are still around in this bear, of the Polygon proof-of-stake chain uh, and why that's not considered a layer two necessarily uh, by L2Beat. I understand why, but it would also be interesting to hear it uh, in your own words as well. So uh, what are layer two solutions and then how would you compare those to the Polygon proof-of-stake chain as well? So, so essentially, we kind of follow the definition from Ethereum Foundation in that uh, layer two solution should somehow leverage the security of the mainnet Ethereum. Otherwise, it's just the uh, the, the side chain that lives uh, independently. And um, by whatever bridging technology you use, you know, it might allow you to bridge assets back and forth, right? But the security of these assets uh, are essentially up to uh, whatever the security mechanism is deployed on the side chains. Uh, with layer twos, ideally, we'd like to have, and I say ideally because you know we still have you know some ground to cover to to actually get to that point. But ideally, you'd like to uh, to leverage the security of Ethereum. And for us, 
Uh, this is really about two things. Uh, it's about the state validity. So we want to make sure that the state of L2 chain uh, is somehow validated uh, on L1 Ethereum, right? So that uh, there is no like, I don't know, additional validators or there is no additional consensus mechanism um, needed. And we want to make sure that it is indeed L1 validators, L1 miners uh, who are responsible for making sure that the state of L2 is valid. And this is important because, you know, if you, uh, if you think about why, uh, they want to make sure that the L2 state should be valid, right? Uh, this is all about the potential power to either mint tokens out of the thin air or uh, to steal uh, tokens from your account. In other words, to, to transfer tokens uh, from your account without your signature, right? So these are the two um, major um, examples how you could potentially steal tokens if uh, there was no validation of the uh, uh, L2 state. Um, so that's like one thing. And the other one, which is like somewhat related, but, uh, but independent, is that data availability. Uh, you really want to make sure uh, that um, if L2 block is produced uh, and that block contains N transactions, uh, an independent observer should have access uh, to the content of these transactions. And this is important to then uh, try to figure out if the state transition is correct, right? So these two things are related somehow, um, um, but uh, they are fairly independent in the sense that we see constructions that use Ethereum L1 uh, for state validation. However, for data availability, they might use some other mechanisms. Um, but pure rollups, uh, constructions that we call pure rollups, uh, which we consider to be the most secure uh, scaling technologies, uh, they would use uh, L1 Ethereum for both state validation and for data availability. Okay, yeah, and L, th thank you for that definition. And L2Beat also goes through the risks associated with those layer two scaling solutions, right? So can you also just kind of give us the category of the, I guess, just the main types of scaling solutions. And then can you also lay out just some of the potential risks that y'all identify on the website? So like I said, I mean, given uh, these two components, uh, state validity and data availability, you know, we can create almost like a, a two by two matrix. Uh, and this is probably the easiest way to think about these systems. Uh, so when you get the new construction, uh, the first questions that we ask is, you know, how does L2 state is validated, right? Uh, there are two known techniques uh, on, uh, on L1 to validate L2 state, and one is validity proofs, and this is sort of the realm of the uh, ZK rollups, the zero knowledge, uh, the, the moon math and, and whatnot, right? Um, and the other technique is uh, fraud proofs or fault proofs. Um, this is the new term that people are using for whatever reason, the fraud. Um, has a bad connotation. Um, so, so the first question, you know, if the new project comes to us, uh, we ask this question, how the state is validated, right? Um, is it a fraud proof or uh, is it a validity proof? Because if it's neither, then that means that essentially your state is validated by uh, uh, an external consensus, which by the way is the case of Polygon proof of stake. And for us, that just means that, you know, you're essentially um, not leveraging Ethereum security, right? Uh, 
and it doesn't really matter what you use for data uh, availability at that point. So, uh, so this is the first question, uh, and the second question is how to do you ensure data availability? And here, there's like a broad range of options. Uh, ideally, uh, the data will be posted uh, to L1 Ethereum, and this gives you like 100% guarantee that data will be available to anyone uh, that needs the data. Uh, if you use some external systems, then obviously you are introducing some external security assumptions, right? So, so these are the main questions. And then you sort of go a little bit deeper and you have to kind of go into uh, the details of the architecture of the whole solution, right? And probably the right question, the right next question to ask would be, uh, what are the permissioned entities? Uh, and what they can do and what is the risk associated with them uh, misbehaving. So the typical permission factor would be the sequencer that uh, essentially sequences transactions and creates blocks uh, on L2. But you might have also a permissioned uh, set of validators. You might have also permission set of admin accounts that can upgrade the system. They can change uh, system parameters and whatnot, right? Uh, so. Uh, this list of uh, permissioned accounts and their roles is something that you really, really uh, need to understand because you can have like super secure uh, construction. However, if there's an admin key that is allowed to upgrade the whole system, it can upgrade to something which is completely insecure, right? And unfortunately, this upgrade key, um, uh, power can potentially be used to uh, to create a backdoor in the system that otherwise would be um, uh, secure, right? So, so these are the main kind of you know things that we look at, uh, and then I guess we uh, we sort of drill deep into the details of uh, each of of, of these um, areas, if you like, right? And we always take this user centric centric view. Like uh, we ask ourselves the question, okay, what are the ways that you can potentially lose your assets? Can you be censored uh, by a centralized actor, right? Can your assets be potentially frozen? Uh, what happens when the sequencer goes down um, if there's a centralized sequencer, right? Uh, what happens if you're trying to uh, to bridge your assets to uh, to, to this chain and, and then not, nothing happens? So, you know, you as a user, uh, you would experience this as, I don't know, a transaction that does not get processed, right? What do you do? Uh, is there any anti-censorship mechanism that you can potentially use? Um, in other words, uh, what are the worst possible scenarios that can happen? Um, so we're not that much interested in the happy case. Uh, we are interested in those, uh, you know, scenarios when things can go really, really wrong, either because there's a bug or, or, or because, you know, there's some malicious actor uh, actually trying to do something really bad. Yeah, and through all that research, well, it sounds like y'all are doing a lot of work, um, which is a huge asset to the space, absolutely. But where are you getting the information for, you know, I, I know you're probably talking developers and looking at their their GitHub repository and probably Etherscan, but, you know, like the developers could have their biases and I guess that Etherscan is a centralized uh, service as well. So are you doing your own audits on this or how how 
deep down are you digging into this data? So this is a very good question, uh, and I certainly would not call the work that we're doing an audit because audits are meant to essentially check if the code complies with the uh, whatever the specification the system has. Uh, whilst, uh, whilst what we're doing, we're assessing the qualities, if you like, of the architecture, right? And normally we do it by reading the, uh, the source code of contracts that are deployed uh, on the mainnet. Uh, we are mainly concerned with the uh, contracts on L1 um, because we have no easy access uh, to the L2 infrastructure and also end users. They have zero access to the L2 infrastructure and and this is the whole point of the whole exercise, right? It's L1 that should secure the whole system. So regardless of what's happening on L2, your funds should be secure. That's the whole idea, right? So, you know, we take this L1-centric um, approach and uh, ideally we would uh, read the source code uh, of a contract that is actually deployed on L1, right? So the prerequisite would be that the contract needs to be verified. Uh, and yes, I do admit that we do depend on Etherscan. Uh, ideally, we should like re-verify that indeed the source code that's available on Etherscan is indeed the same uh, as the deployed bytecode. Um, but this is a very easy check, right? Um, it's much, much more difficult when the contract is not verified and we don't have access to the source code then uh, we simply refuse to list um, the rollup, if that's the case. And, and, and frankly, in my personal opinion, you know, this is not too big of an ask uh, to the team to actually make sure that, you know, end users have access to uh, the source code. And like I said, not through the GitHub, but, you know, we want to make sure that whatever is deployed, uh, we can read the source code of that system. Also, GitHub doesn't give you access to the important system parameters, right? Uh, and with the deployed code, uh, we can actually check uh, the, 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 you know, whatever the parameters are there. Okay. And another thing I want to touch on is data availability and why that's important. And also because Polygon has Polygon Avail, which is a data availability solution, not an L2, but a, a scaling solution, which is what we like to say. That's what we specialize in. So yeah, I just wanted your uh, get your opinion on that. Uh, what is data availability? Why is it important, uh, especially for layer two solutions? Yeah, uh, this is a good question because you know what I, I really found that um, this is probably one of the most confusing uh, terms to to a lot of people, and and in my opinion, the term itself is kind of unfortunate a little bit uh, because it's very broad. Uh, However, you know, we actually use it in a very narrow sense. When we talk about data availability, what we actually mean is the uh, um, that when a new block with new transactions is being announced to the outside world and is being published, uh, we want to make sure that if anyone wanted to look inside that block and they wanted to look inside every any transaction inside that block, uh, they would be able to actually get, you know, the details of that transaction, right? And uh, for most people, when they are using Ethereum, it sounds almost like like an obvious thing, right? I mean, you go to Etherscan, you click on the block, you click on the transaction, and then when you click on the transaction, you'll see exactly 
you know, from to um, whatever the, you know, the, we, we uh, call it the payload, right? Which is essentially, you know, how much ether are you sending? And then, and then you also see the call data. Uh, which uh, essentially is the content of the transaction. And this is almost like an instruction of what to do with this transaction, right? And when you think about all these transactions, when you combine all of them, uh, they will move the Ethereum state from state A to state B, right? All of these transactions will change. Balances will, some of them might mint some NFTs, some of them might burn some tokens, some of them might swap some tokens. Um, uh, but the end result will be to essentially start from state A, uh, process all these transactions in a block, and then announce that the new state is state B, right? So imagine that, you know, some entity announces, hey, here's the block uh, that moves state A to state B, and your new balance is this, uh, but that entity does not really show you the content of that block, Right. It would be as if, you know, you logged into your bank uh, and bank would tell you your balance is, I don't know, $1,500. Uh, and you're like, why? I mean, yesterday I had 30, right? Uh, but there was no explanation because you uh, will have no access to, you know, transactional history, right? And you wouldn't know really uh, why your balance changed from 1500 to uh, whatever. Uh, so... Uh, so most people take it for granted that, you know, when you click on the transaction, you will get the content of this transaction. But that's not actually the how, you know, systems are created, right? It's perfectly possible to create a system where, you know, you just announce the new state, but do not really reveal uh, the content of the block and you don't reveal the content of the uh, transactions. Um, so why why it is important to reveal not just because you're curious, uh, but you just want to make sure that uh, that this state transition from state A to state B is valid. And there's only one way to do it, and that is to actually you know look inside the block and try to re-execute all these transactions. Right. So this is more or less the uh, the strategy of all the optimistic rollups. Uh, Any independent validator should be able to look inside the block. They should be uh, able to look at every single transactions, uh, re-execute them, and they would be able to find out if indeed the state B is correct. Uh, ZKRLs are a little bit different, but they also need uh, this property. They also need the data availability. Uh, they need independent users to uh, independently recreate the, 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 the most recent state uh, of the whole rollup. That's, that's helpful. And yeah, I think I think you're right. That's maybe data availability is maybe a little bit of a misnomer. I mean, I don't know. I, it it makes sense, but it's like cryptocurrency is more than just currency, too, right? So yeah, and my, my opinion, you know, a lot of people are confusing this with like like an archive of all the transactions, which is a little bit different property. And this is something that uh, a lot of people don't realize, and they keep asking questions such as. Why don't we use, I don't know, IPFS, right, for data availability? Why don't we, like, post, you know, the, the data, I mean, the content of all these transactions to some sort of archival system? Uh, it doesn't really matter if it's, like, centralized, decentralized. You know, this is a broad discussion, but they are confusing the need to look into the most recent block with the need to sort of browse the history. 
Um, and these are two different uh, needs, right? So when we talk about the data availability, we are mostly concerned with the most recent blocks because we need to make sure that the state which is announced is valid and we want to be able to validate the state, right? Uh, so this is what we are really, really interested in. Whereas if you're interested in, 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 you know, like finding out what happened on Ethereum a year ago, then you do need some sort of a, a archive uh, node or whatever, or, or some sort of a, you know, system that keeps all these old transactions, but you can definitely certain, you can be definitely certain that uh, if uh, blockchain was essentially processed a year ago and no one was complaining, right, that probably means, I mean, that means 100% that um, all these transactions were available and the new state that was like announced uh, a year ago uh, was valid, right? There's no need to revalidate that state. Yeah, that, yeah, that makes, that makes sense to me. Yeah, thanks for elaborating on that. And so when I look through L2 Beat on the website, um, you know, I see, I do see Polygon Hermes on there, which is great. That's one of our ZK rollups. And then I, I get a little excited because I'm thinking Polygon Maiden, Polygon Zero, Polygon Nightfall will all eventually be on this list. Uh, and then I scroll, keep scrolling all the way down to the bottom. And then I see Fuel, which has $8 in it. And you've got a pretty interesting story about Fuel, if you would, uh, wouldn't mind sharing it. Okay, so uh, Fuel, uh, in a way, is a unique um, system. It's called V1. Um, I'm not really sure uh, why it's called V1, but the Fuel team insisted that, you know, it's a production-grade uh, system. Uh, the problem with Fuel, uh, the main problem is that no one's actually using it, right? Um, and I'm not really sure if that was actually intentional, but uh, Fuel V1 is the first uh, optimistic rollup uh, deployed on Ethereum, and um, it's also fully uh, permissionless, and there is no permissioned actor at all, right? So there are no upgrade keys, there is no multisig that can actually change that system, uh, there is no centralized sequencer, anyone can post uh, L2 blocks and anyone can challenge uh, the new L2 blocks, right? So, so you would think that this is almost like an ideal uh, optimistic rollup. The main problem with it is that it can be only used for payments. So it's not uh, extremely exciting. And this is probably one of the reasons why people just did not use it at all. Um, and that $8 that's actually sitting there, I think that must have been put by, you know, the actual team uh, about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, because this is literally when uh, the system was deployed, right? Uh, so being an optimistic roll-up, um, anyone can try uh, to post an invalid uh, state, and you would hope that someone will, like, challenge you, right? Someone will post a fraud proof, a proof that the state is invalid. And when someone does that, um, you, as an entity that posted in valid state, you uh, will be slashed, right? Uh, this is more or less the assumption from optimistic rollups. So again, um, anyone can post a state and anyone uh, observing that chain uh, can challenge you. And if you are lying, you will be punished. Um, but this is how you steal tokens from optimistic rollups, right? You try to post invalid state. 
So we kind of figured that since no one's using this and this $8 is a very low value, uh, no one would pay any attention and no one would like look into this chain. So we wanted to steal that $8 by essentially posting an invalid state route. Uh, there's this delay uh, period that gives, you know, honest validators time uh, to to sort of catch uh, the thief, if you like, right? Uh, but, you know, our assumption was that since no one's using this chain, no one's watching this chain. And we did post an invalid state route, um, and we waited. And we waited, I mean, normally I think you have to wait two weeks, maybe, you know, this chain is set up to be extremely conservative. Uh, but on, I think after 15 seconds, you know, there was a transaction of something uh, that uh, essentially posted uh, a proof that we committed a fraud on this chain. So we literally lost half an ether because that was essentially the, the bond that we had to pay to post a new statement, right? So, so essentially, you know, what was meant to be a story of how important it is to have those watchers, you know, those independent entities watching the chain, and um, the chain can be abandoned. So uh, maybe it was secure. Now it's not secure. That was the whole intention, right? I mean, we really thought that, you know, we would steal this $8. We would create a publicity around this. And people will be like discussing how do you make sure that, you know, these independent entities are actually watching the chain. Well, instead, we got slashed. We got caught red-handed. Uh, we lost uh, half Ether, um, which was essentially punishment uh, for us and as you can see Idalus is still sitting there right? um, so maybe you know it's almost like a bounty you know for people to try out uh, but to me it's actually a proof that uh, optimistic um, roll-ups they are also uh, very secure and uh, and th these are very very uh, valid constructions yeah, I, I heard you tell that story on uh, Chris Black's podcast, and I thought that was really fascinating because no one's going to miss that $8, but it's it's an exciting experiment for y'all to test that out. And so you mentioned that, you know, on an optimistic roll-up, uh, you, you need to post a, a, a fraudulent state route to try to steal tokens. And so what, what would be the equivalent on a ZK roll-up? ZK rollup uh, actually um, it would be quite hard to come up with an equivalent because the valid validity of ZK rollup uh, is actually ensured uh, uh, by the fact that uh, you don't just post a new state route you have to post cryptographic proof the ZK proof that your state is actually valid right and the smart contract on L1 uh, does the verification of that uh, zero-knowledge proof. Uh, so this type of attack would definitely be not possible on ZK rollups. You would have to uh, rather try to find a bug uh, either you know, in, uh, in the verification logic uh, on L1 or, or in the whole uh, construction like like the math behind the whole construction I think this is actually much much harder and um, and doing so would probably require you to um, well I mean to, to really understand the single line of code of both the prover and the verifier and and also to, to find the, the the flaw in in, in math behind them 
uh, and that probably would be um, much much harder for sure right I, I i would certainly be not the person that would try that that's not to say that it's impossible but uh but i think you know the complexity of the uh, uh rollups is something of a you know of a problem for potential hackers <laughs> um they would have to actually you know put a lot of um um yeah effort into into trying to find a bug with with very little chance of actually doing so, right? So if you wanted to attack a ZK rollup, uh, probably your better option would be to try to see if there are some other, you know, vectors, maybe admin vectors uh, that allow uh, for upgrades, you know, these types of things, uh, rather than just the math behind them. Okay, that's that's interesting. Yeah, and this is such a, a new technology in this space, or I guess it's been around for a long time. People have been developing it, but it's it's so hard to find education on L2s. And I feel like, well, the Ethereum Foundation has some great resources, but this is also great uh, information too on l 2 beat. And again, I, thanks to you and your team for putting all this together. And you're also uh, looking at doing putting a section together for L2 bridges. Is that true? And can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Why that's important? Yes. Uh, so, um, I mean, you can see. Well, first of all, you can see uh, these constructions as uh, uh, as bridges as well. Weirdly enough, uh, because essentially what the bridge is is it allows you to move your assets from from one to some other blockchains and all these uh, rollups, uh, they all come with what we call a native bridge, right? Which is essentially, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the infrastructure that allows users to move assets across. That's the whole point of having a rollup uh, instead of independent chain, right? Independent chains can like run independently and 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 and. Uh, and they are meant to be uh, used side by side in a way, uh, whilst these are meant to uh, to essentially take your assets from Ethereum, uh, move these assets to uh, to um, to L2, and and give you uh, this boost in in computational uh, power. In in you know they they are meant to be cheaper and and whatnot, right? Uh, but essentially, the user experience should be more or less the same as Ethereum. So, in a way, uh, these are bridges as well. Uh, every single rollup comes with a native bridge. And then you've got some other bridges, uh, and there are different types of bridges, different classes of bridges. And what we found, uh, talking to, to a lot of people, is that, well, first of all, uh, it's very hard to build a rollup. It's much, much easier to build a bridge, right? So, you have many more bridges uh, than rollups. And then these bridges also have different security properties and different security assumptions. People don't seem to be aware of them, and they do like uh, how we describe uh, the risks. They do like uh, our risk frameworks. And we've been approached by a, a number of uh, bridge aggregators uh, interested in linking you know, to, 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 to a risk framework that would be similar to what we've got with rollups, but it would be applied to bridges. Uh, so they would distinguish between the bridge that uh, has some sort of a multi-sig um, in the middle uh, versus the bridge that uh, is doing some kind of an optimistic verification, uh, somewhat similarly to optimistic rollups, 
versus the bridge that would use uh, zero knowledge uh, technology or uh, or what we call a light client verification, right? The bridge that would essentially verify the consensus on other chains, which in a sense uh, these rollups do. Um, so, um, so we looked at the problem and we found that indeed, you know, this is a very uh, somehow natural way to extend this framework. And we will be launching the bridge version of this uh, in, in probably a few weeks, I hope. Uh, and it will be a much longer list with more bridges, I guess. Um, and people will be able to essentially uh, learn uh, what are the security assumptions associated with these bridges. Mainly, can their assets be stolen? Can they are uh, transactions can, can they be censored uh, and so so the, the idea is to, to essentially build something very very similar right um, but for bridges are these bridges just for ethereum to layer twos or would it also be right like from avalanche to solana or what what's the focus there because i feel like just like Polygon proof of stake not being considered a layer two, you've got to draw the line somewhere. So where's the line drawn for y'all on that? Yeah, so for us, the natural way of thinking about it is uh, we would list bridges uh, that take our assets from Ethereum to anything, really. Um, so the Polygon POS bridge would be a perfect example uh, of a very good bridge with a lot of uh, TVL or TVL locked in the bridge, if you like. Um, and people might be interested how this bridge actually work. Uh, what are the security assumptions? Is there a multi-sig uh, with the upgrade uh, power and, and whatnot, right? Uh, there have been a lot of discussions about the multi-sigs. Almost every time we point out that, you know, there's like a, a EOA account uh, with the upgrade possibility, teams uh, very quickly upgrade that to some sort of a multi-sig. Um, so, you know, I mean, this is, I think, uh, important for people to know. It's also important for people to know if the smart contracts uh, that bridges use, uh, are they verified or not? Uh, and also, what are the actual security assumptions, right? Who do I need to trust when I uh, bridge uh, my assets? So, funny story. Uh, and I hope that you know no one takes it as a thought of anything. But you know I was trying to move my ETH, uh, some of my ETH uh, from the mainnet to Optimism, and and you have two different uh, options uh, on their UI. You can use what they call a standard bridge, which which essentially is the native uh, bridge here, and they also have what they call a warp, I think, uh, bridge. Uh, which allows you to move small amounts, but you know it's supposed to be much cheaper and much, much faster, right? Like a standard bridge would probably take 10 minutes. The warp bridge is supposed to take one minute or less. Uh, turns out that you know when I tried to use it, my transaction got stuck for, I think, six hours. Um, so the bridge that was supposed to be fast, right? Um, took much, much longer than, than the standard bridge. So, Users, I think, should be aware that uh, everything comes with certain assumptions, right? And the standard bridge will always process my messages uh, because otherwise it won't process anything. I mean, the whole rollup will stop uh, if my uh, deposit is not processed. Whereas the warp bridge, I'm entirely dependent on some sort of an intermediary. 
and it just happened that this intermediary like crashed, failed, whatever was offline. I, I don't even know what happened because I have no way to to, to check. But uh, but my deposit wasn't processed, right? Not just mine. I think thousands of other deposits were not processed. But uh, but the failure of this intermediary essentially means that uh, your funds will be stuck. And if this failure is permanent, then your funds might be stuck forever. Uh, and that is a big contrast to um, you know to, to to the standard bridge, right? Uh, so. I guess, you know, if you're like moving, let's say, $100, you might be okay, you know, with this uh, potentially catastrophic scenario that your inter intermediary disappears, right? Um, but if you're moving uh, bigger funds, um, obviously you should know that uh, the success of your deposit is entirely dependent on the uh, honesty of this intermediary. It's a fully trusted system. Now that's that's really interesting. And yeah, bridges is something that I've been looking to dig a little bit deeper into for a while now, but I think I'm going to sit back and wait uh, for y'all to deploy your 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 bridge website or your your report on bridges. I think that'll be pretty helpful as well for users and developers alike, right? Um, so it looks like we're we're starting to run up on time a little bit. Bartek, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, is there anything that we I didn't ask or I didn't touch on that you want to address? I guess with L2Beat, which uh, turned out to be much bigger than we expected, you know, we found that there's a huge niche uh, for uh, for people that, on the one hand, they understand uh, very deeply uh, the solidity and, and logic of all the smart contracts, right? And they are able to translate that knowledge to something that uh, is sort of like digestible for end users. And I, I think, you know, this niche is very important. Uh, and we got a lot of uh, encouragement for, from a lot of people to continue this work, uh, ranging from, from Ethereum Foundation, uh, the teams, the, the roll-up teams, the Polygon as well, obviously, uh, and, and individual users. And uh, I mean, at that point, you know, all I can say is that, you know, the team at L2B is in this, you know, huge need of, of like getting more people on board because like I said, I mean, it seems like we we actually are doing work that's that's needed, right? And if you're interested, if anyone's interested in, in, in joining this team and help us to work on uh, not just rollups, but also bridges and maybe some other uh, aspects of the uh, decentralized uh, finance and, and the coming multi-chain uh, ecosystem, just uh, please do reach out to us because uh, like almost everyone else, we are hiring and uh, we'd love uh, to have more people on board that uh, actually contribute to this project. Absolutely. And on that note, where can people go to find out more about you, L2Beats, and we'll say MakerDAO as well? We do try to respond to uh, to direct Twitter messages. Uh, we do have our own Discord. Uh, MakerDAO is obviously you know a different story versus uh it's it's a proper DAO with with hundreds of people actually contributing to the DAO and and I lost count, but I think maybe 30, 40 uh independent what we call core units. 
uh, doing all sorts of things. Uh, so you don't have to be developer to contribute to MakeDAO. Uh, a lot of work uh, involved with growing the ecosystem with uh, um, ranging from risk management to uh, HR to, uh, to, to actual technical work. Uh, so first place for everybody and and almost everybody hired themselves into these organizations, right? And this is a very, very different experience than if you, say, wanted to work uh, for some sort of a traditional commercial organizations. You would have to go through the uh, traditional recruitment process here. Just uh, join the forum, uh, you know, make sure that you've heard on Discord, uh, just join the, uh, the live um, uh, community calls, um, just learn the ecosystem, get to know people, uh, go to a conference. Um, I think half of the MakerDAO and 100% of the L2B will be in Paris. Uh, that's very soon, right? And just talk to us. And if you're really interested in joining the ecosystem, uh, uh, working for either MakerDAO or L2B, I, I think that's very easy. Um, just need to reach out and, uh, and just show that you're passionate and uh, you really are interested in this space. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Bartek, for hopping on. The work y'all are doing is an incredible asset to the space and really appreciate it. And yeah, thanks for coming on. I'll talk to you next time. All right. Thank you. Bye.